Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. It's so great to have you back. Hey, I do want to share uh, something with you. You know, recently I was uh, just talking with a whole bunch of friends about just how just things get sideways, things get crunchy when you're talking with people uh, or you, you or people, you know, hear something that you didn't mean to say, but then they take action on it, Right. Um, either in, you know, little subtle things or things that can cause big, you know, harm to maybe even somebody, uh, your other relationships when it might even come across as gossip. I mean, there's so, communication today, especially with some of the cultural things going on in our culture, the generational differences. There's so many things at play right now. And why is clear conversation so important? Because how do you have a deep relationship and have influence on other people if you're not communicating in a way that they probably need for you to so, so you're both understood and you're both heard? I mean, this is foundational to building trust and having a great team. And so we're going to have a conversation with uh, Chuck Wisner. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You know, hey, folks, I do want to ask everybody there a favor, <laughs> please, you know, if you're listening... Uh, as we go through this, please, if, if you like to send it to a friend of yours, uh, let a friend know about the Eternal Leadership Podcast on any of the apps that you're on from Spotify and iHeartRadio and iTunes. Just go ahead and follow the podcast. And uh, we're excited. We're in 162 countries and, and continuing to grow. And we just thank you and love you guys all for your support. So with that, Chuck, I'd love to sh for you to share a little bit about your background. And then we can okay. talk um why this is such an important topic today. Sure. So the book that you meant, my book, The Art of Conscious Conversations, has been a journey for me. And I say that because I, my real training, uh, my educational training is in architecture. And while I was practicing in Boston, um, one of our partners was having trouble with alcohol and it was affecting our clients and our staff. And so we needed help. We, we were architects but we were done with people so we hired in some help and we burned through a few consultants that didn't work out too well but then a woman came in her name is linda reed and she interviewed us she worked with us individually she worked with us as a group and over about a four six month period got us to an end point where we had a resolution for the problem that everybody had knew what role they had to play to go move into the future and one day I woke up and said, how did she do that? It felt like magic to me. Like, I didn't know how she did what she did and how she brought us together and how she helped us find solution. And so that put me on a journey. And I went on a journey for four years and I studied mediation. I studied the ontology of language and I'd studied um, uh, systems thinking and, and worked with some folks at MIT. And after four years, I left architecture and I jumped into consulting with leaders around communication. And then 25 years later, I was been inspired to write the book. And that's, that's, uh, that's where we are today. So this was such a passion that you left architecture and your professional training to go pursue this. What was it about this that you felt was so important that you needed to make that kind of pivot to, to go yeah. understand it so you could teach it? Yeah, so it wasn't, just to be clear, it wasn't at all a rejection of architecture. I mean, it's an amazing business and it's amazing education. Tough, but amazing. 
but you know, I, from a young age, I had a spiritual, philosophical, psychological sort of interest of what, what is life and what are the powers higher than us and what's all that. And so that was always boiling in the background. And I was meditating since I was a young, young fellow. And what Linda did with us seemed so kind and so compassionate. And so she connected these dots and that just drew me. That just was like a calling that I almost, <laughs> almost didn't have a choice to say no. And so it took four years, but slow, I just, because of my curiosity and that heartfelt calling and also intellectual curiosity, I just started saying, well, what's behind this? And I studied mediation and I then I studied something that Linda had studied, which is called the ontology of language, how we are as humans, because language is such a big influence on who we are. And one thing led to another until four years later, I said, you know, I can't, I, I have to move to this. I have to make this jump. It was scary because at the time I had two young children. I was a partner in an architecture firm. Uh, so it was a little scary. Of course, it wasn't a good economic time, so we weren't booming with business. But I made the jump with one client. And, you know, sometimes you have to make that jump off the cliff to, to see what happens. And literally three weeks later, I got a call from some folks at MIT who were running some leadership programs, and they asked me to join them. And so I, I've just been blessed. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, when you think about this 25 years journey and where we're at right now, the book, Conscious Conversations, what makes it so important right now today? Oh, boy. I wrote the book because in teaching and working with my clients, the tools that I learned, some of them are very esoteric, the linguistic tools that are hard to understand or they're buried in some other text. And I wrote the book because my client kept saying, how do we how do we read about this so we can practice? So that that was sort of what sparked my interest in writing. But now now and that process was long five years or so. But now that it's out, we're in a very different time than we were 10 or 15 years ago. You know, it's interesting. There's a funny difference. The world is getting smaller because of technology but at the same time we seem to be shrinking into our little pockets of what we believe and how we sort of uh, define ourselves and so i think we have to re-engage ourselves to connect with people through conversation because that's how we resolve conflict that's how we resolve our differences that's how we learn from each other and right now that's at a short supply and so my teacher, his name was Rafael Echeverria, uh, when he was teaching me, he said, you know, if I took you to Alaska and we spent six months with the Inuit Indians, I guess they're natives, and we learned their 27 names for snow. When we came back to New England, I live near Boston, when we came back to New England, you would never see snow the same way. Because now you have 27 different names that you didn't have in your cognitive brain. And so every time it snows, you're going to see it and think about it differently. And in some ways, these distinctions about conversations are like that. We live in conversation. We live them like fish in water. We're not aware always of the waters we're swimming in. 
And so when we forget some new distinctions about how conversations work and why they don't and how we get in the way or how we can get out of the way and how we can build trust, if we have those distinctions in our head, we can't be in them as innocently. So we have to step in and go, wow, I can do that differently. I can transform that interaction with my sister or my boss or my or my kid. Well, I love that. So, Chuck, I just had a thought. So this whole journey, as you've been studying humans and, and conversations and how we communicate, what's the most interesting thing that you've learned in the last 25 years? Well, I've learned a lot. But the things that really kept me on the journey were things that happened to me that transformed my life. So for one, many years ago, I was 25 years ago or 30, maybe I was diagnosed with leukemia. And that was about the time I was doing these studies. And um, there was a way in which I dealt with that, that had to do with my internal conversations, my internal conversations with myself, my conversations with the higher beings, my conversations with God that freed me from the fear of, oh, this is it. I'm going to die. I mean, I refused to sort of go down that road. I was like, I have a diagnosis. Now, what what can I do? That was transformational. And then the other thing that happened was when I was studying, I realized I had a story in linguistics. It's called a master story. I had a master story that I wasn't a big enough man, which I adopted from my grandfather. He would tell me that all the time if I didn't like to go hunting or I didn't like skinning the deer or I, or I cried. He would say, be a bigger man. You're not a big enough man. That went in me and lived with me until I did these studies. And I said, wait a minute, that story isn't the truth. That story also probably colored how you saw yourself and how you showed up the rest of your life. Absolutely. Until I was able to look at that story and go, wait a minute, let me. I adopted that innocently as a child. But now if I take a really hard look at it, what are the facts? What's the reality of I'm six foot tall. I'm an architect. I have a beautiful wife. I have two children. Things aren't adding up here. And I, I was able to look at that story and I didn't have to blame my grandfather because he was doing what he was doing. But I said, you know, I don't need this story. I can change this story. And so this notion of stories, we live in stories and some of them serve us beautifully. And some of us really are harmful. Well, I, you know, two things you said that I really love, because all of us probably have those stories. Those stories, I'll never forget once, Chuck, I was the shy, overweight kid in middle school. And I was mm -hmm. in one of these, um, you know, schools that athletics was everything. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of bullied and torn. I always kind of felt tormented by, you know, some of these athletes. But yeah. I had to give a speech. And all these guys were sitting in the front row and I, I, I embarrassed myself. I stuttered and stammered through the whole thing. Yeah. And the, um, and the teacher, he thought he, I, I'm, I'm sure he had no ill intent. He was probably mm -hmm. trying to lighten the mood, but he came over me and he just said, Ramstead, I hope you don't pick a career where you have to be a public speaker. <laughs> and so it was like cemented in my head, my, uh, that I was not a good communicator when yeah. I was, you know, 15 years old. Wow. And even in the military, even as I, you know, went through my career, I would have literally panic attacks if I had to speak or present in front of a group. Yeah. Here's what you said, though. You said, I don't have to blame my grandfather. Yeah. Right. And these things could even be hardful. I think when we blame, 
when we're angry at others, when we have unforgiveness, it makes it almost impossible to reshape and retell that story. I think it starts with what you did. Hey, I'm not going to blame him. He was, you know what, even if there was ill intent, which I know there wasn't with your grandpa. So this is my just advice to the audience. Yeah. Uh, when I have just let go of that, found a place of forgiveness, say I'm not going to blame them, but it is what it is. But how do I reshape and retell the story or replace that story, yes. which could be a false story that I've accepted as a truth? That's where we get wrapped around the axle. I know I do. And let's yeah. replace it with the truth. That's where I reach up to God. And when I realize that, I go, Lord, show me the truth. What do you see when you look at me in this? And he goes, he wants to tell us. And he shows me. He goes, John, I see you as a great communicator. As a matter of fact, I want you out speaking around the world. I want you to share your story. And you have been doing it. And I understand why. But now just step out on faith and follow me. And then, boom, a whole bunch of things opened up. But I, I love – so yeah. I just wanted to reinforce what you just said. No, that's great. And look, look at the transformation you did. You know, it, it's remarkable. And so your question was, what did I, what's something I learned? And this notion of the power of stories. And there's a whole spectrum. There's beautiful stories that serve us really well. There's fiction that in, educates us. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where there's a lot of negativity, a lot of blame and shame, right? And those are the ones that if we don't pay attention to them, they eat us alive, you know, and our ego sort of taps in and then we're we're really not able to be our true selves. You and I were talking before we got started. There's really four key kind of areas of story that there's that storytelling conversation there's a collaborative conversation. There's a creative conversation. And then um, uh, there's that commitment conversation. And I think all four of those are areas we need to, uh, you know what, where, where would you like to start? What's the that key point? If I maybe want to get, a, you know, better, I, I'm, you know, this is a, a lot of our audience, Chuck, as you know, our business leaders, right? They're running teams, yep. they're, or they're running nonprofits and, when we're talking about communication, like with a team or with my family, my spouse, my kids, where, where's a good place to start here? All right. Thank you for mentioning the four conversations. And we can I can briefly cover them each. The key place to start is the, the, the reason the storytelling conversation is the first conversation is because that's primary. If there's something going on with our kids or our team or our leader or in our community, that triggers us and we you know we have an emotional trigger we have a bad conversation or we respond badly the storytelling conversation says doesn't deny any of that but it says you know unless you look at your trigger unless you look at what story you're telling yourself internally you can't be a better listener you can't be co-created with others you will make promises that you can't keep that destroys trust so the notion of really paying attention to the storytelling conversation says, okay, first, I start with me first. I start with my relationship with myself. And part of that is having the conversations with ourselves. We all have public and private conversations. We have public conversations that we say out loud and private conversations that are going on in our head. Some of those really serve us, and many of them are super negative judgmental, opinionated, that are sort of come out of, 
you know, sort of our internal dialogue takes over when our parents start telling us what, what we're doing wrong, <laughs> right? And the other thing I like to do to soften the blow here when we start looking at this stuff is to realize that I like calling the, the ways that we interact with people and the reactions we have or the triggers we have as patterns. Because when we think about them as patterns, it's less judgmental. So, because I can do something and maybe snap at my wife or snap at a, a the cable guy. But honestly, if I then start judging myself, oh, don't be such an idiot. You shouldn't have been so mean. But if we can look at it and go, wow, look at that. It's an interesting pattern I have. Where did I adopt that? Where did I learn that? That gives us a little bit of distance from the pattern so we can actually become a witness of our thinking and our words and our conversations. And from that point of view, that's sort of our higher self from that point. You're of view. kind of almost tapping into that observer self. So absolutely. What you're saying is, hey, be conscious and be aware and just say, OK, you just had, you know, I just had the interaction with Chuck. How'd that go? Well, you know, I walked away feeling a little annoyed. I walked away feeling a little like frustrated. Right. I walked away going saying, wow, man, that was the best conversation I had with Chuck ever. Yeah. But you got to take time to pause a little bit and go, okay, what, what was going on? What was yeah. I thinking? What was I feeling? How was I, was I, was I waiting until Chuck could, was going to get done so I could say something? Cause it was, right. some, or was I actually trying to listen, ask a follow-up question? And you know what, that has been something, you know, getting into coaching myself, that ability to really almost have the observer self, but also listen to the point so I can also reframe. Yeah. Right? Hey, Chuck, yeah. here's what I heard you say. Yep. Right? Yeah. And that that piece of being a better observer of our own internal dialogue and saying, you know, not beating ourselves up about it, but saying, wow, look at that pattern. How could I change that? We can actually, by looking at it, and what I, I have a process called deconstructing our, our opinions or deconstructing our judgments that says, A, we'll have an emotional trigger and we have an opinion that goes with it or a negative judgment. And we can look at it, but then we need a way to take it apart to understand it so we can transform it. And in the book, throughout each part, throughout each conversation, I use four archetypal questions that help us sort of like unpack our thinking when it starts going south. <laughs> yeah, what are some, I'd love for you to share some of those questions if we get a chance, Chuck. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Let me just briefly talk about the other three conversations so that we don't lose them. When we do... Our, what I say, our own work, and we start being a witness or an observer of our own patterns, then we can change them. We, we actually have the power to change them. And then the next conversation, the collaborative conversation, that really is about our the dance of listening and talking, asking questions, presenting our opinion. So it's a dance of advocacy, advocating and inquiring. And the more we do our own work and are, are aware and, and able to be more honest and full of integrity and, and vulnerable, the better we can be in that collaborative conversation. A metaphor I like is if we're entering a conversation with at home or meetings at work, 
many people walk into those conversations with their opinion. And the, the metaphor I like is it's like walking in with a closed fist. So with a closed fist, I say, no, this is how it should be. And the other person comes in and says, no, this is how it should be. And, you know, that there starts the battle, right? Now, neither person might be right or wrong, but they have their opinions. And so the four questions are a way to slowly open our fist so we're in a conversation with an open hand, right? And we're willing yeah, to I say- I love that metaphor. I want to share with you a strong opinion, but here I want to share with you also my thinking underneath it. And then you're entering with an open hand. It's a little, it some, takes some vulnerability, but you do it because you know, you know, if we all would open our hands a bit more, we could move into a mutual learning space and talk to each other and learn from each other. And I could say, oh gosh, you know, I never, John, I never thought of it that way. Thank you. Uh, now that sort of changes how I'm thinking. So the, the four questions to open our fist is, the first one is, what are our desires? So if I have an opinion like this meeting should not be going this way, well, what do I want to have happen? What's my goal? Is that different than other people's goal? Does my leader have a different goal? So desires are beautiful things because we set goals, we move to the future, but they're also dangerous because many of our desires are not aligned with reality. Meaning mm -hmm. when we have a desire that says, I want my boss to behave this way. If that boss isn't capable of doing that, we are fighting the reality of the moment. And how would I reframe that? Let's just say that I do have that boss and I've been getting frustrated because I can't influence their behavior, but right. I want to stay at the company. I don't want just to turn into this, right? Like, hey, it's one of us has got to go and it's probably going to be me. Right, right. right. How would right, I maybe right. reframe uh, a goal in a conversation with a boss like that? Yeah, so there's two pieces. One is unless we accept him as he is, because you and I can't change him. He can change him. God can change him. But unless we accept him for who he is, we're going to show up with a lot of anxiousness and a lot of tension and, and stress in our voice, in our body language. So once we accept, we go, okay, you know what? Bob is Bob or Mary. That's who they are. How can I change so that I'm engaging differently? And so that's really a key piece because only through acceptance do we settle down so we can change our own thinking and our own behavior. Then once we do that, I might be able to cash more uh, calmly say, you know, Mary, I hear what you're thinking about what you want to have happen. I have some information that shows us a counterpoint that maybe there's a, a different way of thinking about this. It's your decision but if you're interested, I, I have some information that might be helpful. See, that's me opening my hand, but also it's a pointing to one of the questions, which is a power question. Like in every conversation, there are authority issues. There, you know, my boss has authority over me just by the nature of the hierarchy of a business. Right. So I have to be really aware of that. So then that, my awareness of the power issue and the authority issue changes instead of fighting her or him, I'm acknowledging they're the boss, they get to make decisions, but I also can say, I have a voice, I have an opinion. If you're interested, let me know because it might be really useful information. 
So in that, but it, so here's what I'm hearing. So in that saying, okay, this person is who this person is. Yep. I'm not going to be able to dramatically change the maybe that behavior that's bothering me. So what if I shift my goal yep. and say, I'm going to accept who they are, right? Yep. And in that, how do we have a more productive conversation? How do I show up and just start to try to have a better dialogue back and forth so I can be heard? And if it really becomes untenable, then, you know, you probably need to leave the situation. But starting with, instead of it becoming a battle, like, hey, I want to make sure that I'm heard. Yeah. Right? Am I thinking about that right, Chuck? Yeah, yeah. So that, that that the third question is the authority issue. If A, you accept who they are. B, you realize that you don't have, they have the power, you don't have the power to make decisions. Um, and that's just the nature of a hierarchy. You might like it, you might not like it, but you know, you might as well accept it because if you don't accept it, then you're fighting a bigger battle. But then there are two more questions that help answer your question. The second question after desires is what are my concerns? Mm. And Generally, we all have concerns under strong negative judgments or strong negative opinions, but we rarely voice them because I don't know, because we're afraid or because we forget or because they're just we're just not aware of them. But often we have a concern because it's it's future based. It's like, you know, I, I, he is what he is or she is what she is. But I have concern about my future. I have a concern about my ability to move here, move forward in this company or actually do great work in the future. And so being aware of that, you know, you might in a conversation with the per this leader say, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about what this next thing is. Here's my concern. I'm concerned about my ability to progress and what my, I have a concern about what my um, path toward leadership is. You're not asking for anything. You're not, you know, pushing against, you're just stating your concern which you own and they might accept it, may not accept it, but you are, you actually own it and you're able to say it. And the last question, so now we have desires, concerns, authority issues, and the last one is standards. And this one is really big because every judgment we have and opinion we have is based on a standard that we most likely adopted through our family, our culture, our education. And by that, I mean, we all have standards of what good and bad. We all have standards of what is right and wrong. And we also have standards of what light do I like? What light do I not like? What color do I like? And th th it's so true that every one of our opinions underneath our opinion is this standard that is almost operating in the background of our awareness. And so when we ask that question of ourselves, well, what standard do I have that has me upset with this person? I have a standard that a boss shouldn't act that way. I have a standard that I should have a voice or I should be listened to. And, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road because you can try to engage with this leader in a different way. You can do your best effort to speak your, your differences and give not without taking their power away. But in the end, if you reach a point and say, you know, and I have executives that left companies for this very reason, in the end, if your standard and their standard are, you just can't close that gap, then you have a responsibility to say, okay, do I want to live with this or do I want to take care of myself and find somewhere where I can be truer to who I am? Well, Does that I make love sense? that. And here's something I found too in some of these conversations, the ones that see, seem a little bit either more difficult or maybe challenging because either the authority dynamic or also 
maybe a long-term relational dynamic. I mean, there's all kinds of things that come into play here. Yeah. What I found for myself is when I pre-experience the conversation, but really focus on my mindset. And if I'm yep. starting out from a place of curiosity and humility versus maybe wanting to make a point or being judgmental or critical, which right. I can get to very quickly, right? I've had to work on that. Or like, you know, in Carol Dweck's famous book, you know, Mindset, showing up with a yep. growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, it yep. tends to have a much more productive conversation. So I would yep. love your thoughts on, if I, you know, as I'm going into maybe a conversation like this, what are some of those things I can do to maybe shift my own mindset so that I have a much better probability of a of what I'm going to perceive as a maybe a, a, an improved conversation, better outcome? Better outcome, yeah. Well, if we take the four questions, the desires, concerns, authority, and standards, and we start yep. looking at that, right? What we're doing that, that those questions are it's like it's like opening one finger of your fist at a time. Let's open each finger and then we're there with an open hand. What we're doing is we're thinking about our thinking. We're reflecting on our thinking. And that's where the mindset shift happens. So instead of battling that leader or instead of fighting with our kids about something, we open our hand and to be shift to a a a, a what I call being a knower where you feel like you have the answer and you have to have the answer and you have to get your way. We shift into a learner mindset where we're open to learning from the other person. We're open to a conversation where we might learn together. And the best way I know to make that shift from knower to learner, because we're all trained to be really good knowers. We grow up in school to raise our hand, to have the answer, um, not to question the teacher. The best way is to think about our thinking and realize that A, our opinion isn't the truth, it's an opinion. And the other thing I do in the book is I separate, our stories have multiple components, but it's our emotions, facts, and opinions. And so often what we forget when we're in these dialogues, when we're trying to change our mindset, we forget that there's a foundational element here, like, hey, here, there are a couple of facts that we could agree on that would allow us to then, you know, move and say, compare our opinions. That ability to be in that learner mindset is transformational. Well, I agree because I, I know I've I, I have done this, right? There's a set of facts. You and I might be in a situation. Maybe it's a business conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and I am um, I'm assuming uh, your what's what's your motive? What's your agenda? If I have some gaps there, I might fill it in and I might create a narrative that's not accurate, but it, it's in alignment yes. with maybe who I am and what I'm bringing to the party, so to speak. Yes. And I might be wrong. And, and yeah. oftentimes I've been wrong or I've assumed the wrong maybe motive or agenda that you might have, but then that call, that, and then that brings up emotions quickly. Right. And um, how do you deal with that? If you can tell that, hey, I know I'm gonna go have this conversation with Bob or Mary, Yep. And every time I've really tried to get to that point where I'm kind of sharing uh, that feedback that it's important to me, emotions get involved on both sides. Yes, right. Exactly. That makes sense. So, yeah. And I think a fundamental thing about emotions is that they're so they're real. You know, we have our reactions, we have our triggers and we have our re uh, reactions, positive and negative, but they're also 
our emo- we get it backwards because our emotions are actually a physical manifestation of our thinking. So when we do have a, a negative emotional trigger, there's always a story underneath that. And when we investigate that story, we're getting a little freer where we're not in the grip of the emotion. And so I sort of turn the cart and the horse around and say, okay, you, you acknowledge the emotion. Don't push it away. Acknowledge it. But then go, so what am I believing? What are my standards? What are my concerns that has me reacting this way? And when we do that, that shifts our tendency or our pattern to make the assumptions you're talking about. And the other part of the collaborative conversation is learning to ask others questions instead of constantly telling them what our opinion is or or advocating for our position. And so these four questions that I mentioned, they're also a great recipe for asking questions of others. Like if you're in that conversation with the other person, instead of going and say, you know, let me tell you how I feel and I'm upset. You might say, you know, help me understand what your position is. Help me understand what concerns you have and and why you help me understand why you think we should go in this direction. Because good questions. Actually, what you're doing with a good question, you're helping other people unclench their fist. (laughs) Right. That's right. You're creating, you're, you're opening a space for collaboration versus basically uh, conflict, right? Right. And you're, you're, and in a way you're modeling that to say, you know, yeah, let's reach out instead of, you know, clenching our fists together or against one another. And there's actually a, you know, there's, I don't want to say spiritual, but there's a contagious feeling to that when you're vulnerable and you're opening and you're asking questions, help me understand why you're thinking that way. You know, that's very attractive to people. You know, it really is. And I want to bring up a corollary to something you said before, right? Uh, That emotion that I'm feeling in the middle of this conversation and it's coming up from my whole, all my life experiences Mm -hmm. and, you know, things that happened in the past. And guess what? The other person has the same exact dynamic. Yeah. Yes. As I'm observing all of a sudden this reaction, which maybe I like it or it bothers me. But if I can get curious instead of making a statement in that moment, but maybe ask a question, because if yeah. I can maybe understand how they think, how they make a decision, why maybe this kind of conversation bothers them, it's going to allow me, uh, you know, as a leader to deepen the relationship, understand them better and say, okay, how do I need to maybe adapt, not change, but maybe adapt my communication style with a certain person so that it can be more productive. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. And if we move from being the employee or the direct report of a leader to being the leader, one of the most important things I've learned from leadership around my working with leaders is that most leaders are not aware of the power of their voice. And this gets to that third question about, are there authority issues? So you step into an office building, I call it, you have there's virtual four walls there, and there's an artificial hierarchy that's just the nature of business, nature of the corporation, the business world. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how it runs. But for a leader to be aware that when they state an opinion, they have their story and they tell their story. Many, many people that are reporting to them 
give their voice more power. I call it the power of 10, more power than they realize. Mm. So their, their opinion, like, well, this is what we should do, sort of shuts down the conversation. And so leaders to be aware of the power of the voice and to create a safety zone, like a psychological safety for other people say, you know, I have a strong opinion, but, you know, before I make a decision, I need to hear from all of you because if you have diverse ideas, diverse opinions, most likely we can learn something and we might make a, I might make a better decision or we might make a better decision. And so for leaders to step back and not always be pushing their voice or be aware of the power of their voice, they can step back and create a safety zone. So they benefit from all the other opinions that hopefully that the smart people they're surrounded with. Yeah. And here's a thought that came up, Chuck, if you're in that authority seat, right? Yeah. Or even if you're a member of a team, I've seen this dynamic, but if I, let's say you throw out an opinion, I'm like, no, nah, that's stupid. Or no, that will yeah. never work. Right. And all of a sudden I, I solicit opinions from my team, but then I shut them down or debate them or argue with what they put out there. Next time I ask for their opinions, the conversation is going to get muted. And what yes. I've had to learn for myself is almost like, yes, and I might totally disagree with you. I say, okay, Chuck, thank you for sharing that. And mm -hmm. does anybody else have anything to add to that? You have to create this dynamic where people feel free to share, even if you might disagree as the leader, because you're not going to get people, because you might get to the point of, you've probably been there, 20 yeah. minutes of people sharing, and then all of a sudden somebody drops. It's like a mic drop moment. We actually got to this really great place that we wouldn't have got to if things were stifled. And I know yes. for a fact, I have created that dynamic in the yeah. past. And it's something I always work on when I'm leading a team is to make sure everybody truly feels heard, even if I might personally think either that idea, that approach is not the best way to go. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's a two-way street because I've worked with leaders who change their style so that they aren't sort of like just you know, passionately saying this is what I think we should do and shutting down the room, change their style. But then the other, the, the, the direct reports, they have to find it in them, their own courage to say, okay, now, okay, I think it's safe to speak up. So I better take advantage of this. So, you know, everybody's got to sort of like, you know, buy into the, let's be aware of this power thing and the leaders, let's create the safety and the followers or the direct reports would say, okay, now we have to step into that and find the courage to find our voice. The other thing you said, John, is that when we are in a really mutual learning collaborative conversation, we just automatically slide into the creative conversation. The creative conversation is like the idea of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Can we open our mind to possibilities and potential? Right. So if we're in a great learning conversation or a good collaborative conversation, all of a sudden some idea pops up in the room like, oh, wow, we were going to do this. But what if we tweaked it a little bit and we turned it this way and looked at it this way? And everyone, like you said, the mic drop and everyone goes, oh, my gosh, that's that's it. That's it. And, you know, that creative thought, that creative idea was only possible because the, the space opened up in the room for people to not be with their fists, but with open hands and, and the right mindset to allow these ideas to like bubble up, you know, like, and we've all experienced that. And, and that's sort of one part of the creative conversation.
It sure is. And, you know, as we, we're, we're kind of wrap, uh, getting to the end here. I wish we had a little more time. But uh, yeah. first of all, Chuck, how do, how do people find you that Folks, I just want to let you know that, that Chuck, with, with all the work that he's done, he's been featured in Forbes, in Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Bloomberg, Fortune. Um, you know, your framework and the tools you've, you've 25 years of work that you put in this book, um, I got to tell you, getting better as a leader at building trust, communicating clearly, having healthy relationships with all kinds of different people. Yeah. It, it is key to being an effective leader, right? Where you can have positive influence in your organization. But Chuck, how do people find you, connect with you, find your book? What are some of those? Where do they go? Yeah. So my website is chuckwisner.com. And uh, I am, I'm in the process. That's W-I-S-N-E-R. So chuckwisner.com, everybody. Yep, that's my website. And and I think there's a button there where you can get a free um, PDF of the introduction to my book. And then um, my book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your favorite bookstore. If they don't have it, ask for it. Uh, social media, I'm on LinkedIn, which is Chuck underscore Wisner. I'm on Instagram, Chuck underscore Wisner. And, and there on the linked tree part of my Instagram are all the articles I've written and some of the other podcasts I've been on. So that that's sort of like the lay of the land. I'm, I'm uh, the, the book business is new to me. So it, it, this journey is quite fascinating and I'm still learning how to do all those things, but I love hearing from people and um, get, hearing from people about how the book has affected their lives. That's awesome. Now, as we wrap up and kind of have to land the plane, yeah. could you talk a little bit about the commitment conversation and why it's so important? Yeah. When, when you were talking about the leaders, how important it is for leaders, the commitment conversation is the action conversation. It's like, okay, we've did our own work. We know how to collaborate. We've had a creative conversation. We come up with possibilities. All that is like a widening, widening of our thinking and ideas and our mindset. And then it comes to commitment conversations and we have to make a decision. It's like everything collapses back to a point to say, okay, what are we going to do? And business thrives on commitment conversations. This is what we're going to do. We, a decision is made. And then because of that decision and because we all agree, then everybody goes off. And in that side, that promise, inside that commitment, everybody has work to do. And so business is built on one promise after another. It's like a link of promises. Unfortunately, we do that conversation in a very sloppy way because commitment conversations are crucial to building trust. And so when we slow down the commitment conversation, we A, make better decisions, but we also make decisions. We don't say yes to things we can't do. We say no to things we can't do. And we find a way to have counter offers so we make promises that everybody can keep. So it's a very complex conversation and I take it apart in the book, but um, <clears throat> it's crucial because if we have a promise and we don't keep it, that is the beginning of distrust. That is the beginning where I start doubting, you know, I don't think he can deliver, you know, and there's a way to avoid all of that because there's so, so things I call like really productive apology or productive complaint. Those are ways to restart when promises go awry. So it's, it's a really big conversation and it's, and it's crucially important and it's the last of the four, but it's the culmination of all of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you do that conversation well, it also yep. empowers your team and everybody wants to be empowered. 
But yeah. if we're going around the room and we have a commitment conversation and you say, okay, John, you committed to this by this time. Right. Um, is there anything else that you need? Is there anything going to, is there anything out of your control that could uh, allow you, you know, that would impact that timeline? But, you know, so we all, you not only create a framework uh, where the team can hold an individual accountable, even as peers, which is very important. Yeah. Um, we also create, uh, like, I know what I need to do and go and then do it without being micromanaged. And th- there are so many elements to a good commitment conversation that mm. re- lead to just such a high performing team. And it's part of the conversation, as I've observed groups, that often gets missed. Yeah, and and part of the reason it gets missed is we are addicted to yes. When the boss runs by our desk and say, can you do a PowerPoint presentation for Monday morning on Friday afternoon? And we, oh yeah, sure, no problem. And she says, I just need, I need 20 slides to show to the board or something. And you, yeah, no problem. And then you spend the weekend doing it and she gets it Monday morning and she looks at it and goes, this isn't what I wanted. And that's all because we did made a sloppy promise. We made a sloppy request and we made a sloppy yes because we didn't ask questions to make sure we understood what we were promising. And so that's the pattern that doesn't serve us well. And just by taking it apart and understanding it better, we can change that dynamic, the leader and the and the direct report. Well, man, this is you're just speaking my language all the way through this whole conversation, Chuck, myself. So just as we kind of wrap up, what any final thoughts you want to leave everybody listening out there? Yeah, I you know, the two things that I'm really finding important for me even is we're all trained to to tell our story and advocate our position. I think we need to re have a new, new way of falling in love with questions. Mm. Really good questions, like questions so that I can understand you, not questions so I can doubt your word or so I can prove you wrong and prove me right. But questions so I can say, you know, help me understand why you why you're so passionate about that. What are your concerns? What are your standards? You know, and and that that just is a very kind way to to move into an interaction that you're showing that you really care and, and, and that maybe there's a different way of addressing a problem. Well, I love that. So everybody listening, here's something you could do. You just heard this. This week, or maybe even today, the next conversation you're in, when you feel like you want to make a statement, offer an opinion, ask a question. Just And just see what happens to the dynamic of the conversation. Give it a try. Ask a question versus maybe how you might normally do it and, and see what unfolds. And so, Chuck, yeah. thank you so much for your time for writing this book. We need this right now. And man, I, I wish you all the best and uh, welcome to come back anytime. I've really enjoyed our, our time together. Plenty more to cover. So thank you for so much for having me and great questions. Great interview.